Many of the people working in these industries are actually what we would have recently referred to as key workers, people who kept the economy going during the pandemic. And also, these services are particularly important for many visions of what a post-growth economy might look like. Hello, and welcome to Economics for Rebels, the podcast of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Up until recently, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered and the earth was finite. This rebellion must bring a major shift to economic thinking. Our podcast is dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations in conversations with scientists, experts, activists, pushing for rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I'm today's host, Sopotu Amgassen, and you're listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. Some key mainstream critiques of post-growth economics revolve around labour and what the labour market would look like in a post-growth economy with the common perception being that economic contraction tends to be associated with unemployment and therefore that a post-growth economy is, is socially unsustainable. But if we are to transition to a post-growth world for ecological reasons or because of secular stagnation, ecological economics needs to present a compelling story about what people's jobs and lives could look like in this world. So I'm very excited today to welcome today's guest, Dr. Ben Gallant, onto the show. Ben is a postdoctoral researcher based at the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey, where he's an expert in understanding and modelling post-growth futures for the labour force. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Sophos. Great to be here. So, jobs in a post-growth economy. We have reasonably high employment in today's slow-growing economy. So, what's the problem? Why do people worry about employment in a post-growth economy? So, when it comes to a post-growth economy, we first need to define what is a post-growth economy. Uh, and the one of the big definitions in the literature revolves around the constancy of biophysical stocks and flaws. Uh, now, there are other, are other um, elements to this that come in, uh, including critiques of uh, GDP as a measure of well-being and also potential um, economic constraints on uh, future growth. So the next question is, how do we get into a post-growth economy? And if we limit biophysical stocks and flaws, we could do that from the supply side uh, by limiting the amount of materials and energies that companies are able to use in production. Or we could limit that from the demand side by limiting the goods and services that people can buy. And in either case, that might not limit the degree to which companies are able to become more efficient in producing the same amount of goods with a given amount of labour. So if their labour productivity increases over time, but there is a constraint on the um, amount of output that they're able to produce from either the supply or the demand side, then that could result in a continuous reduction in the amount of labour that is demanded and therefore a reduction in the employment rate. So this idea, um, I first came across it in a paper by Tim Jackson and Peter Victor from 2011, uh, and they referred to this potential difficulty as a productivity trap. 
Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so uh, what is labor productivity? How has it changed over time? And why does this matter? So productivity uh, in economics refers to a ratio of an input and an output. So when we're talking in economics, the output is usually uh, measured in monetary terms. Um, And unless we're talking about the level of an individual firm or factory, um, that will be some sort of aggregation of different outputs measured in terms of their economic value. That's usually measured as a statistic um, as gross value added or GVA. And that involves taking out the intermediate inputs that go into the process when we measure output. And also it would be usually measured in real terms. So we deflate that value to try and account for inflation. Um, So that's the output. On the input side, when we're talking about labor productivity, that would be hours of work or number of employees, some measure of the amount of labor that goes into that production process. Um, So labor productivity is important for a couple of reasons. One I've already touched on, and that was kind of the potential negative effects of labor productivity growth in the context of a post-growth economy. Um, So if we have continued labor productivity growth, but for whatever reason, we're not able to continually grow output, then we would have falling employment. But we can look at labor productivity from a more positive side. And in the more mainstream literature, that would usually be framed in terms of its potential to create economic growth. The way I tend to like to think about it is labor productivity can introduce flexibility into our relationships in the labor market. So labor productivity is particularly important when it comes to the relationship between wages and prices. It kind of mediates that relationship. There are other factors that go into determining that relationship, but labor productivity is probably the most important, especially in the long run. Uh, And what that means is if we've got a particular set of economic activities that we want to incentivize, we would want to incentivize those from the demand side by offering low prices. And from the supply side, we would want to attract labor by offering high wages. And if everything's held constant, it's very hard to adjust both of those in order to allow for attractive prices and wages. But labor productivity can allow us to make that Uh, relationship easier to manage and also increases in labor productivity can free up labor to work in different parts of the economy so for example there are some jobs that people maybe don't want to do and by increasing the labor productivity in those sectors we could make it so that less people have to spend less time doing those jobs Okay, that's really interesting. So lots of your research has focused on Baumol's cost disease. Uh, What is this and and why does it matter? Okay, so earlier I mentioned a paper by Jackson and Victor. um, And at the end of that paper, when they're describing the productivity trap, one of the potential solutions they suggest is that we could move from parts of the economy that have high labor productivity growth towards parts of the economy that don't have high labor productivity growth and are more labor intensive uh, because labor productivity isn't homogenous across the economy. 
So Tim, who was one of the authors of this paper and also supervised my PhD and has been a previous guest on this podcast, uh, he did some more research into uh, the particular sectors that have low labour productivity growth. One of the things that he found is that there are a set of sectors that have both low labour productivity growth and are also relatively low in their environmental impact. Uh, This led Tim to continue to read more about this set of economic activities that potentially offers a source of sustainable work in the long term. And what he found was that there was actually another economic literature that was already talking about these types of activities. Now, this goes back to the 1960s um, and an American economist called William Bommel. That's Bommel, B-A-U-M-O-L. So... Bommel wasn't just an economist, he was also a fan of the theatre. And he was such a big fan of the theatre that he was actually friends with quite a few actors. And what he realised after a few years was that every year his theatre tickets were getting more expensive, but every year his friends who were actors were telling him how low their wages were and how difficult it was for them to live. So he conducted a study um, and he got this set of, and he got this set of data um, from the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, a set of accounts that they had. Um, and what he worked out was that it comes back to this relationship that I already described, which is this relationship between wages, prices, and labour productivity. So that was published in 1966, and the following year. Bommel published another paper, which is called The Economics of Unbalanced Growth. Uh, And in that paper, he formalizes this concept into a mathematical model. And he also identifies that this isn't just a theory that applies to the theater, but it actually applies to a broad range of economic sectors. And in particular, he points to public services. So to explain this um, model, this theory that Bommel came up with, which has since come to be known as the cost disease, uh, it's useful to think about a simple example. Uh, So let's say me and you, Sophos, we live in a town, and in that town there's two employers. There's a school and there's a factory. You work in the school, you're a teacher, and I work in the factory. Uh, when I teach this, I like to pretend it's a clock factory because I kind of like the poetry of talking about productivity and clock making. Um, so let's say I'm a clockmaker in this factory. Um, and at the beginning, me and you, we have more or less the same income, roughly the same wages. Uh, and then one day my boss buys a new clockmaking machine. And this means I'm able to produce twice as many clocks per hour as I was before. So this means that I'm making more money for the company every hour. And I can then go to my boss and say, well, you're making more money out of me. uh, So I'm going to demand higher wages. And if, say, I'm in a union, I might be able to secure that rise in my wages. Uh, Now, you're in your school looking across at the clock factory. You can go over to your boss and say, well, you better raise my wages as well now, or I'm going to go get a job at the clock factory. Now, 
your boss isn't able to buy a your boss isn't able to buy a machine that helps you teach faster they might be able to increase the size of your class but that's going to reduce the quality of the education that you're delivering um, but if you're able to secure that rise in wages because of that um, threat that you could move to another company that offers higher wages somewhere else then the cost of the service that you're delivering is going to rise meanwhile at the clock factory i've had my wages raised but there's this offsetting increase in my productivity which means the price of clocks hasn't changed but the cost of providing an education has increased so the increase in productivity in the clock factory has led to an increase in cost in the school so why is this important well when we're talking about this set of industries that we are economic activities that we're particularly interested in because of their ability to provide sustainable employment it becomes very difficult to shift the economy towards those industries um, if the cost of those industries and the price that those outputs are being sold at is rising all the time relative to these other sectors where they have a relatively higher environmental impact but higher labor productivity growth which means they're becoming cheaper over time this also has the potential to limit the effectiveness of environmental taxation because this inflation effect can outpace the in increase in a tax for example a carbon tax um, and that's something that has been talked about both in some of Bommel's writing and more recently by people like Lucas Hart in some of his papers. Yeah, that's a really nice example. Here. Thanks so much. Um, so another one of the kind of large ideological and cultural differences between uh, mainstream and ecological economics appears to be their kind of attitudes towards slow uh, time and, and labor intensive work. Um, in your work, you've highlighted that William Bommel himself called high labor productivity growth sectors progressive and low labor productivity growth as stagnant. Uh, so what's your views on these descriptions? Okay, so in writing my PhD, I decided to move away from the commonly used terms in the literature. Uh, and I opted for the terms fast and slow to describe these sectors. So fast labour productivity growth and slow labour productivity growth. Um, the reason for that is twofold. So firstly, uh, while Bommel used the term stagnant and progressive, uh, actually the literature moved from that into talking more about services and manufacturing, which is actually quite confusing because there are quite a few services that have relatively high labour productivity growth. Uh, a good example is financial services. So one of the reasons was to try and bring it back to something that was a bit more precise and a bit more clear. The second reason is that, uh, as you alluded to, the terms stagnant and progressive are quite value-laden. Uh, if this was a visual medium, what I'd usually do now is show you a Google image search result for the term stagnant and progressive. Um, <laughs> But I imagine you can imagine what that looks like or Google it on your own time. Um, so I haven't really talked much about what's included in these um, in this slow sector. Uh, so 
particular industries that we'd be looking at here would include um, healthcare, social care, education, arts, repair work, um, hospitality. So obviously a number of these services are very important to uh, providing key functions within the economy. It's also worth thinking about many of the people working in these industries are actually what we would have recently referred to as key workers, people who kept the economy going during the pandemic. And also, these services are particularly important for many visions of what a post-growth economy might look like, whether we think of that in terms of sort of practical delivery of well-being, or whether we think of that in more sort of philosophical, ideological terms about a kind of care-based economy. uh, The particular sectors that we're talking about here are really important. Uh, And so for all of those reasons, I thought it was a little insulting to refer to them as stagnant. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm kind of blown away that, um, that, that all of these really foundational jobs in society, the things that I essentially value most, I think create the most social value, would be so disregarded um, through sort of mainstream labor productivity theory. Um, so in, in what way would changes in employment be different between sort of recession in a growth-oriented economy and a reduction in throughput of a, of a post-growth economy? Okay, so here I think we need to go back to how we get into a post-growth economy. So often when we talk about a post-growth economy and most of the examples of it in the, economic, in the ecological economics literature, we're thinking of it in utopian terms, a sort of idea that we're moving towards this kind of um, post-growth state intentionally. And under those terms, we would be able to have some intentionality about how we provide um, alternative jobs for those who would lose uh, their jobs due to increasing labour productivity in particularly high labour productivity growth sectors we would be able to potentially set up some guardrails in advance. Um, However, there is another type of post-growth economy that we might want to think about as well. It's equally possible, and one of the reasons that we care so much about this idea of a post-growth economy is because of the potential environmental feedbacks if we don't move to one. Um, And under that circumstance, we may end up in a different type of post-growth economy. Those environmental feedbacks would limit economic output and we'd have potentially quite significant shocks to both supply and demand and under those circumstances it would actually look a lot more like an economic recession. Uh, So the point there is really it's how well we prepare for it and also how intentionally we move into that state. So can you give any broad indications about what work and labour might look like in a post-growth economy? So one of the things I found uh, when I was modelling the dynamics of the cost disease for my PhD was that even if we have a quite significant shift from these fast sector to the slow sector, and even if we have relatively low labour productivity growth in this fast sector as we have in recent years, uh, that that might not actually be enough to fill the gap Uh, that's created by rising labour productivity growth. Or in other words, even quite a big shift into slow sector might not prevent rising unemployment. 
So what that suggests is that we may also need some amount of sharing of the remaining work, um, so potentially a work time reduction. Um, however, when we modelled other scenarios, um, and what's important to keep in mind here is that the slow sector in itself isn't homogenous. So there are some parts of the slow sector that have higher labour productivity than others. Um, so if we were to move to the more extremely labour-intensive end of the slow sector, um, and we wanted to provide more of those services in a post-growth economy, we actually, from our modelling, found that you would need an increase in work time. Um, so that suggests there's quite a range of possible outcomes there. Uh, I think we can potentially take this as a positive. It suggests a range of options um, in terms of deciding between which services we want to deliver, how much free time we want to have, and also importantly, how many of those services that we want to deliver through a kind of paid work model that we're used to. And to bring it back to a point that you made earlier, in your work, have you looked into how to resolve this potential tension whereby um, sort of uh, salary increases driven through the high productivity sectors um, lead to you know, increases in the relative costs of these low productivity sectors? Is there any like policy mechanism for ameliorating that kind of effect? So we found two possible solutions. Um, it's worth noting that in terms of the model we were modeling we were doing it's quite conceptual modeling so there's nothing definite in terms of our conclusions but they do point towards dynamics that might be helpful in terms of solving these issues so one of the first things we found and this is quite encouraging actually is that just by shifting towards the slow sector the bigger that becomes the less the cost disease effect appears um, in the future. So in that sense, just by trying to achieve the goal that we want to achieve, if we're uh, making incremental steps in that direction, it actually becomes relatively easier over time. Another policy we explored, which was a bit more creative, was to tax the high labour productivity growth sectors um, through a sales tax and use that to subsidize the low labor productivity growth sectors. And the way we ran this in the model was just to allow the tax rate to fluctuate in order to see how high that had to go in order to completely remove this price divergence between the two sectors to kind of remove the cost disease effect. And the result we got out, um, and bearing in mind this is a conceptual model, um, was in around the same range as a value-added tax that's currently in place in quite a lot of countries. Uh, so it seems like there's potential here uh, to implement that sort of tax in order to limit or even potentially remove the cost disease effect. That is so interesting. Um, so you've been analysing questions about labour productivity and employment using stock flow consistent modelling. So what do conventional macroeconomic models miss out that makes them poorly suited for your kind of work? And what is stock flow consistent modelling? Okay, so um, I think the first thing to say is that 
the term stock flow consistent modeling can actually be a little misleading. And this was explained well in a, a review paper by Nikki Forrest and Ziza. It's called Stock Flow Consistent Modeling a Survey. And that's a good introduction, actually, just to the topic generally. It's a little out of date now. I think it was from 2017, but it's a useful starting place. Um, but one of the things that they explain in that paper is that the stock flow consistency of stock flow consistent models isn't actually really their defining characteristic. There are quite a few models um, that we would consider more mainstream that actually meet the criteria to be called stock flow consistent. When we say stock flow consistent, what we mean is that all of the stocks and flaws, the monetary stocks and flaws within those models add up and there's no kind of black holes where money disappears or is created out of thin air. Um, what is unique about these models? Um, and there are two points that they raise in that paper. And I think a third one that they may mention, but I may just be adding myself. It's a little while since I've read that paper. Uh, so this first point is most mainstream models, um, what we'd call, what we think of as mainstream or neoclassical or new Keynesian models, um, are based on what are called micro foundations. So they start from behavioral assumptions about individuals, and then they make an assumption that they can aggregate those behaviors, and they will look very similar at a macro level. Uh, and there's two broad problems with this. So firstly, um, there are issues, mathematical issues, and conceptual issues related to aggregation. Um, that's quite a long, uh, quite a large literature, and it's fairly technical, so I won't go into too much detail on that. Uh, what's maybe more relevant to um, the this discussion is that uh, a lot of the critiques from a heterodox perspective center on these kind of macro, uh, these micro foundation assumptions. Uh, so this is where you'll find um, rational expectations, um, self-interest, um, and optimization. Um, and stock flow consistent models build down from national level accounting identities and layer behavioral assumptions on top of those and have a bit more freedom in the types of behavioral assumptions that they can make. Um, and what this means is that those behavioral assumptions can be based on theory, they can be based on um, different ideas about how you might see people acting in the future, or they can be based on um, empirical observation. Uh, so they don't rely on these flawed micro foundation assumptions. Um, the second thing about stock flow consistent models that's particularly useful is that they integrate the financial sector with what's called the real economy. So there is a uniquely comprehensive integration of financial um, aspects of the economy, banking, financial assets, with production of goods and services. So both sides of, those, of the economy are represented um, in much more detail. So that's not as important to my work, um, although some of those dynamics obviously do influence the way that the model uh, behaves, but it's particularly useful in transition modeling um, and 
if we think about, for example, um, the stranded assets literature, um, that's a particularly useful method for exploring some of those potential issues uh, in relation to an energy transition. Uh, finally, stock flow consistent models differ from more mainstream models um, in that they are demand-driven rather than supply-driven. Um, so a lot of mainstream models tend to assume some version of what's called Say's Law, um, and that's the assumption that um, supply creates its own demand. Um, so when you increase productivity, you automatically increase consumption. Uh, whereas in a stock flow consistent model, that assumption isn't there. Um, and it's possible to have an economy that has excess supply um, and is demand constrained. And this allows us to explore the potential effects of rising productivity with limited economic output, which is particularly important to my work. Um, one thing that's been really interesting with the stock flow consistent literature is that as more ecological economists have started to adopt this um, modelling technique, it's also drawn in more post-Keynesian economists who've worked on these models for a long time into building ecological macro models. Um, so that's been a really useful exchange in recent years. Yeah, super. So um, I asked listeners via LinkedIn and Twitter for their questions, and we're introducing a, a listener's question today. Um, our one today is, how can we retroactively reskill the working population to meet the changing skill profile of industry that will come with the upscaling and degrowing of specific industrial sectors? Okay, um, so this is where I might need to um, show some humility as a macroeconomist. Uh, because I don't know that I have any particular expertise in how we reskill workers. I think if we're thinking about the practical questions about how we um, actually retrain people, that's maybe a topic for either microeconomists or um, people who work in more sociology or other related fields. Uh, what I will mention, though, is that I think one of the big challenges that we're going to have in the coming years in terms of reskilling uh, is that there's going to be a large number of people who need to be trained to do jobs during an energy transition. Um, and we may not need all of those people doing those same jobs once that energy transition's taken place. So we'll need a lot of people to to install renewable energy infrastructure, and some of those people will still be able to work in uh, maintaining that infrastructure, but there might be quite a considerable number of people who then need to be retrained again. Um, so in lieu of actually giving a proper answer, uh, what I would do is I would recommend a book that I think um, give me some really interesting insight on this topic. Um, so a book called... Um, Education and the End of Work um, by John White, um, which I think is from the 1990s. Um, and I can't remember because it's a little while since I read this, whether this is an explicitly anarchist theory on changing education um, or if I've just intuited that, but it's a kind of a philosophical exploration of education and a 
kind of an alternative way of delivering education that um, is sort of ongoing and continuous through life and I think would fit better with some of these challenges we're potentially going to face in the future. Um, I think also from my perspective, there's a slightly bigger question for a post-growth economy, which is related to this, um, which is how do we actually make sure that we're matching people to jobs? Say we need um, to expand the number of people working in care significantly. And on the other hand, a lot of the way that we think about a post-growth economy um, often involves a lot of um, expansion of free time uh, and a lot more autonomy in the way that people choose what they're going to do with their time. Uh, well, what if we don't have enough people who want to spend their time working in that care sector? Uh, that's, I think, a question we need to think about um, quite significantly as, as we're working to expand our understanding of what a post-growth economy might look like. Uh, so I, I don't know that I've actually answered your question there, but um, <laughs> well, you got I to plug know. you got to plug some quasi-anarchist educational theory instead. So that's pretty great. Um, <laughs> so thanks so much for being here, Ben. Finally, I'll ask the questions we always finish with. Uh, what's your rebellion? I'll start by saying that um, I'm a fan of this podcast, so I've I've listened to quite a lot of episodes. Um, and that means I've had some time to prepare to answer this question. Uh, and what I've decided to do is give you an economist's answer, which um, roughly translates as I'm going to answer this question three times without actually answering the question. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say is that as a fan of the podcast, um, whenever I listen to that question at the end, I kind of wince a little. Um, I think... Uh, whenever it's asked, I think, oh, God, what if Sophos asked me that question? <laughs> what would I say? And I feel entirely inadequate um, because um, what is it that you can do as a rebellion that's actually commensurate to the scale of an ecological crisis? Um, and I think, well, I'm not actually the most rebellious person going. Uh, I think probably a lot of other people out there feel the same way. And I think actually probably the most militant rebel that you know, if you ask them that question, will get a little bit of that feeling um, just because of the scale of the challenge. So I wanted to start by acknowledging that because uh, I think maybe some other people felt the same way as me. That said, uh, I don't mean that as a criticism of asking the question because I think it's actually really useful. And I think particularly in academia, um, we have a kind of small c conservative disposition quite often because we tend to be tend to want to have some degree of certainty or to reason our way into choices before we make them and that's not usually um, compatible with a kind of activist approach and I think people sharing their strategies that have worked well in the past is a really useful way to help other people out in developing um, their own ways of doing this. The second answer that isn't really an answer. <laughs> uh, so a, a colleague reminded me recently of something that I'd said in a workshop. Um, so another colleague had invited us to a workshop on how to be more productive as researchers. 
Um, and given the conversation we've just had, you probably anticipate that I didn't necessarily engage with that workshop on the level that it was intended um, and maybe tried to deconstruct the concept of productivity a little. Um, and what I said at the time was one of my top tips for how to be a more productive researcher um, was to read inefficiently. Um, and at the time, I didn't think anyone had really understood what I meant by that until uh, this colleague uh, who's a sociologist brought it up later on. Um, and basically, my point there was that we're often in academia reading text towards a particular output or a particular purpose. Um, and that particularly as an economist, it's important to read things that are outside of your discipline but also to read things that aren't actually necessarily connected to a particular academic output. Um, what I will say about that is that making decisions like that requires a particular context and it requires a particular um, set of support. Um, and it's only possible to do research in these particular ways when you have people who've created a space for you to be able to do them. Uh, which leads me to my third non-answer to the question, which is that I've been able to do research in this way because of the people I've worked with. And I've had, and I think something that I've noticed in ecological economics over the last few years is that it can be quite difficult to live in accordance with the values that we espouse in our research. Um, so I think I've maybe spoken to you about this before, Sophus, but the sort of definitive example of this for me was an email I received at 7.30 on a Sunday night uh, asking me to read a paper about the, benef the benefits of work time reduction. Now, I'm not saying that ecological economists should all work less, and obviously if we were only working two days a week, we would never get to um, the change that we need to see. But I think particularly in the way that we interact with others and the way that we try to create a working environment for others, um, that's something where we could try to um, live by our values. Um, and I've had really good role models on that in um, my two supervisors, um, Tim Jackson and Simon Mayer, who've both been on this podcast before. Uh, and so that's more not so much a rebellion that I have now, but it's something moving forward in my career that I want to kind of strive towards. I absolutely love that. I think that might be my favorite answer to that question I've ever heard. <laughs> so thanks so much to, to Dr. Ben Gallant for joining us today. Uh, and thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks, Sophos. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics. <laughs>